we see ourselves as different, different kind of black people. And to, to be honest with you, yes, I know the whole thing of, yeah, they're not our brothers. They really are not our, like, you know, this, this whole thing of like, I am not black American, I'm African. But at the end of the day, people just need to understand that the minute you get out of Kenya and you go into the world, because the, the world is not always going to be just Kenya. And the minute you go into the world, you're actually going to understand that actually you're black. And it doesn't matter whether you're in Europe or you're in the US, you are black. <laughs> yes, you are. And so this of a, a brand, different brand of blackness is something that Africans, I will battle with until I die because I want to have that thing of like, I'm unique. I have my own ancestors. I have my language. I have my values, I have my work ethic, you know, whatever, whatever. <clears throat> By the end of the day, out there, I promise you, you're black. She's my a special lady. She's the only one. Salam and hello, everyone. My name is Lily Bakala Piper, and welcome to the show. Welcome to the month of June. I am so excited to welcome you to the next several weeks of stories that we have lined up for you with all kinds of incredible African creators, in particular Kenyan creators, I have to admit. Uh, and we are kicking off this month with an interview with the author Irene Mushemi Indiritu, who has just penned this beautiful novel, Lucky Girl. Those of you in Nairobi may have seen Irene at one of her many events in the month of May. She was here on the ground signing books and talking to audiences about the story of Soila. Soila is a Nairobi girl who goes to the US to complete her education and carries with her the burden and blessing of being from this place. She carries with her the, the expectations of her mother, the expectations of her community, the norms of her culture, her identity. She also has a new journey to forge of trying to fit in, find her place, understand Black American culture. All of this is set in the context of the 1990s America, an era that I am incredibly familiar with. I grew up in the United States after immigrating there as a young child. My parents first landed in North Dakota, of all places, and I spent a majority of my childhood deep in the South. Middle school and high school was in South Carolina for me. I also did my college in North Carolina, so pretty much a Southern girl at heart. The 1990s were a tumultuous time. It was the time of Gulf War. It was a time of racial unrest and affirmative action was just starting to become more popular. And for me, as an Ethiopian immigrant to the US, it was absolutely a time of deep racial and identity reflection. I was really trying to find out who I was and reflect on how I fit into American society as a teenager and eventually as a young college student in the 90s. None of those conversations or reflections were easy or simple. I never grew up in Ethiopian communities. I grew up, like I said, in South Carolina and before that in Kansas and Indiana and Illinois. So I didn't have this Ethiopian or even African immigrant community around me. I was almost entirely surrounded by white people and in white institutions. My teachers were almost entirely white with a few exceptions. I've talked about Ms. Brownlee before on the show and my amazing AP biology teacher, Ms. Reeder. Both of these black women really helped shape who I was and helped me understand and find my way. 
But the 90s were an odd time. You know, we didn't have the language to really talk about all the ways in which race was intersecting with our lives and interrupting our lives. And in particular, we didn't have that language as African immigrants. I can't remember conversations with my parents where we actually wrestled around race specific to being Black American in the U.S. All of my conversations were much more around fitting in between worlds. You know, I, it was a lot about how I sounded different than other Black kids or how I sounded white or white kids were, you know, less scary to me. Um, I look back with a lot of heaviness and sadness for those years, you know, a lot of frustration that I had was not well maneuvered or well understood. I didn't understand where I fit and I didn't know where to go with that. Um, and a lot of my frustrations were misplaced. But as I got older, it was the Black American community in the United States that gave me refuge and it gave me a home, gave me language, gave me culture. I will always be indebted to some of those early friends, Tia Durham, Tremaine Stevens, so many others who loved me and cared for me and helped me understand what it was to be Black in America, to be a Black young person in the 90s. This book, Lucky Girl, follows the story of Soyla, who, much like me, finds herself in the United States in the 90s in the middle of a very troubled culture and a troubled time where being Black was not complex, yet being African in America also didn't really have a clear path. Irene, as the author, really challenges her readers to face issues of feminism and misogyny, of African family secrets, and the heaviness that that brings, assimilation, immigration, all of those questions. She challenges us to think deeply about them, and at the same time, to enjoy with lightness and with laughter some of Soyla's adventures and her misunderstandings, and the heaviness that comes with being an African daughter and all that, the, the journeys and the adventures and the burdens that Soyla carries. So I'm just really delighted to have Irene on the show today to help us wrestle with Soyla's story and maybe even wrestle with our own. So welcome to the show, Irene Mushemi Indritu, to talk about her book, Lucky Girl. Thank you so much and thank you for having me. I oh, really yes. appreciate you having me. I've been so um, just humbled and honored at how well the book has been received in Kenya. I didn't even know that the book was coming to Kenya until the very last minute. So I was just so excited when I found out. And then I came and I was just like mind blown by the support. And I've just been, I've just, thank you so much. Really, thank you oh. so much. Because I do, I do want Kenyans to read the book. I really do. And I'm glad they are. And I'm glad they're loving it. Thank you. It's our it's our pleasure. You know, I what I didn't say in the intro is that, you know, this has been a journey for you. You are a trained writer and a graduate from some of the world's finest journalism programs. You have a degree in creative writing from the University of Cape Town and MFA. You have a degree from a master's, a second master's in journalism from Columbia Graduate School of Journalism. So you come to this juncture well prepared, well thought out, you know, creative and offering us a story for us to dig our teeth into. So I am really excited about this conversation and to talk about Soyla and her journeys. And before we get to Soyla, let's talk a little bit about you and your path to writing. I know it cannot be an easy question, but Give us a sense of your path into this career as a writer. Okay, I think to surmise, and I think what I've been telling a lot of people when they ask me this question is I want to focus on the um, sort of never give up 
that's what I, and especially for women, I never, I never thought that I could do it. Um, I always thought, you know, it's not going to pay the bills. Um, mm-hmm. It's not something that I can do for a career. And, you know, what, what, what kind of a career, like, it just didn't seem possible. And I um, ended up like muddling myself in journalism, because I thought, well, at least that's going to pay the bills. Um, and then I sort of left journalism and I went into comms, you know, media and communications, because I thought, well, at least that's going to pay the bills even better because that pays better. But I was always just really unhappy. And then I thought, you know what, man, I'm just done. I'm done. And I just want to do what my heart tells me I should do, what I've been always wanting to do since I was like 10 years old. And I don't know where it's going to go. And I'm old, but I'm going to do it. (laughs) <laughs> and I and I went back to school and I'm not saying that everybody that wants to pursue this should go back to school it's an endeavor it's expensive I did happen to get a scholarship from UCT so it was easier but I had kids and I and I needed and I had to sort that out and I had to and I went back and I best thing I ever did and I wrote the book um I wrote actually a bunch of short stories and the one of the short stories was Lucky Girl but it was not called Lucky Girl and it was definitely not that much in depth. And then um, I asked one of my mentors, what should I do for a novel? And she said, you need to make this thing a novel. Mm. And I did. And so I want to just tell people, I always tell people like, the only thing you can take from my story is, please, um, I know this whole thing of like passion versus making a living. Because I have grown kids now. And that's one of the things that we've been discussing, you know. So I wanted to say to people like, yes, yes, there is an issue of like, you do need to pay the bills. Um, And yes, maybe some of these careers are scary and, you know, they might not be what you think is going to sustain you. But I also think if it's going to make you happy and fulfilled, there's got to be a way to work around it. You know, there's got to be a way, maybe get a day job with your regular you know, finance or whatever, but find a way to grow this other part of your soul. And if it ever takes off, hooray, you know, then you can ditch the finance, you know, and it's never too late. I'm 40, my book has been published. I'm 46. I was 46 in March. I was signed by Random House. I was 42 years old and it's just never too late. That's, that's a beautiful way to start this story. And you've already started to touch on some of the themes of the book of this tension, I think, that exists for many of us, especially from the continent of the duty to be responsible for the opportunities that we're given and the passions, of course, that live inside all of us. So let me start with the title and, and talk about some of those themes. The, t- the, the story has, you know, at its center, Soila and I think her mother, this very strong mother, um, who Yeyo, who really, you can't escape her throughout the book. And you call the book Lucky Girl. Yeyo is a highly religious woman, Catholic of all Catholics. I, it made me think of Paul in the New Testament who says he was a Jew of all Jews. You know, she was a Catholic for, to end all Catholics. Do you think Yeyo would approve of this title, Lucky Girl? Do you think she would have resonated with that theme? I do think because in Yeyo's mind, believe it or not, she's always thought Sheila is extremely lucky. And I don't know if that comes out in the novel, but she's actually really deluded in that she actually thinks this daughter of hers is super lucky because she's got privilege. She's got Mm. economic privilege. She can, you know, it's like if I'm able to, 
give my children at the drop of a dime an education in private school and boom, they get into the best universities and it's not an issue, can write the check every year for $60,000. Like I'm sitting there going, you guys are really lucky. What are you moaning about, right? So she thinks her kid is lucky, but she she's very short-sighted in, in sort of the, uh, I don't know, the emotional EQ, I would, would, would call it. She doesn't think about actually beyond giving my child that kind of privilege. Am I giving her um, support emotionally and um, just nurturing her growth as an individual psychologically? And I think that's one of the reasons that there's that disconnect between mother and daughter because all Suela has ever wanted, you know, was from just this mother was like just a hug. That's yeah. all she ever wanted, you know, a birthday party. You know, yeah. not because she wanted all these presents, but because she felt like, well, you know, everybody else has a birthday party and their mom does all these, you know, you know, when you organize your kid's party, there's so much love that comes with that. It doesn't have to be a, a fancy uh, place, you know, um, but even if it's just at home, the kids can see the love and you make the sandwiches and you, you know, you, you arranged the presents and where the kids are going to hang out. And maybe you brought in like a bouncy house. That's the stuff that your kids remember when they grow up. And so it doesn't have that, you know. So, yes, the mother thinks this child is very lucky and doesn't understand what exactly are you actually moaning about. You know, you've got it all. Yeah, I, I really appreciate it. This is why I feel, I feel lucky to talk to you because I have struggled with the mom. You know, I'm also a mother. And I kept, I tried to like her. I tried to empathize with her, you know, thinking she has suffered so much. She has suffered the loss of her husband and, and the shame of that she carried um, because of society and how they might look at her because he took his own life and all these things. And yet I really struggled to like Yeyo because I wanted her just to love Soila. So did you like Yeyo? I've heard authors talk about their characters and how they almost become otherworldly to them. How did you feel about uh, her? <laughs> uh, Yeyo has come a long way. Uh, Yayo was actually quite, I would say, more on the abusive side. And uh, she was just way too stern and she was just way too um, <clears throat> cold. And I remember one of the things that my uh, editor said to me was, look, I mean, nobody is one way. Like, no, but, like there's no human being that's one way. And even though <clears throat> we are finding out that there's a lot of trauma and that th this is why she's like this, we still do need to kind of make her a little bit more uh, 360. Mm. And I do think that if you had seen the original, yeah, yeah, <laughs> you would really <laughs> not like her. She was really mean. No, she was very mean. Um, mm. a, a good example, and I don't want to do a spoiler, but a good example was there's a scene in the book where she uh, slapped Soila across the face because Soila has thrown out her lentils. Um, yes. which kids do they don't want to eat the food so they toss it right Definitely. behind you right and so <clears throat> Shayla, I mean Yayo you know backhands her on the cheek and Shayla says my cheek sizzled you know and in the original version uh, Yayo is like like listen I can give you more there's more where this <laughs> but in the final <laughs> version she actually goes to the freezer and she puts a uh, ice chips or ice cubes in a bag and she comes and she puts it on Suela's face even as she's telling her off 
So you can see that she's still a mom. The delivery is is harsh, but at heart, she's still a mother and she's still saying, look, this this isn't good. This is bad. But at the same time, you know, she's still trying to heal her. And so those were the little subtleties, I think, where you start to see, okay, she's she's mean, but she's still a mom. Yeah. Um, and I and I hope and I was hoping that readers would say, you know what? And what what's funny is a lot of people came to me at the signings, the, the three days we had the, the signings, the events, and a lot of people came to me and they said to me, You wrote my mom. And um it oh. was uh, gay men came to me and said that. Mm. And uh, and I think a lot of older, I noticed women. So I would say my generation and and the and the what do you call them? The boom, they're the boomers. <laughs> the, yeah, yeah, the boomers. That's right. Yeah, those who lived up. right after. Oh, no. Yeah, independence. Fifty-five or that. up. Yeah. Is it fifty-five to sixty-five? That's right. Whatever. That's right. Mm-hmm. Actually, the Supreme Justice who uh, moderated the last event at Sarit said to me in front of everybody. You know, you wrote my mother. You know, so a lot of people that are from my generation, they get it. We had these really stern moms. At the time, you think, oh, my God, my mom is the worst. She's so mean. But later on, you're like, you know what? That's what she knew. That's how she Mm. was raised. You know? So the Gen Zs don't get it. They don't get it. They don't. And, you know, but it's interesting. I think in the book, up until the end, you know, Soila is seeking that love and, you know, it breaks your heart because it's what we know every child does seek and they do have some sense of redemption at the end. I want to talk about the flip side of that relationship too, which was this love for her father and the seeking out of that relationship. And, um, you know, this poor child, Soila, again, our protagonist, is struggling with the need for both parents and the want of both parents. And you are not terribly gentle with Kenyan men in this book. There are a lot of, uh, you know, between her dad and some of the other partners we see, Kamau later, one of her aunties, uncles, or even um, the priest, of course, Father Emmanuel. I mean, we see all these caricatures of men. And, you know, they're, they're, it's hard to wrestle with that image, too. So tell us, Irene, kind of what do you want the reader to draw from that? What do we do with these narratives kind of around men who both are absent or when they're present are not always present or available in healthy and productive ways in the relationships they're in? Again, this is a generational thing. So you might find the Gen Zs as well don't get it because they've had fathers that are very different. They've had fathers who Mm -hmm. changed their diapers. They've Mm -hmm. had fathers who read them bedtime stories. My children would never understand uh, this man who doesn't really engage. That's not what they know. Um, yeah. But we, we in my generation, this book is set in the 90s. This is a child of the 70s. That generation, the men, it, first of all, Kenya is still fairly quite patri- patri- patriarchal. Am I right? For sure. We've come oh, a long way. Yes. Not We've just Kenya, I mean, way. the continent. We're dealing with right. the continent of men here yeah we've come a long way uh but you know so imagine now the men of the and these are the men that said that sat um I remember my my mother I love my mother-in-law she's the best I'm so lucky um she when when my first child was born uh she would see Nick uh my husband changing diapers whatever and she said you're so lucky 
because in my time, in it would my never time, happen. Uh, I had six children, and uh, the husband would say, and I'm battling with these six children, and they're holding on to me. Some are on my skirt, and some are on my breast. And the man is sitting in the living room, going, eh, "Can I have my tea, please?" Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> so <laughs> this is this is this is the 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 men of that generation. Kamau is a man of uh, of of if he if he's living in the 90s he's a man that's born in early 70s he's been he's he's seen a very different father that's what his has been his role model you know so i think that um we've come a long way but i think that kenyan men i'm not going to talk about african men i do not have that permission because i can only talk sure. about what i know um we have they've come a long way but i think they've been very problematic for a very long time um and i it's the truth and one of the things as well that people brought up and i don't know if this is going to be something we discuss later but i think it should be discussed in this podcast was the issue of family secrets and this ties oh up with the men because you know can the africans there's just a lot of family secrets we do not talk about what's going on right and i and Absolutely. i talked about this several times and i've said when i was when i was in the states after i had my kids i stayed home for a little while and i would watch oprah at 4 pm and I, and i'm with my baby and they'd be coming on and talking about how they were sexually abused and i would be sitting there going oh my god they're showing their faces yeah yeah talking about they were sexually abused like what So <clears throat> that's something that nobody would ever talk about ever you would die first before you talked about you were sexually abused as a as a Kenyan person of that generation so you know this all ties up it's very a lot of it is very cultural and unfortunately i think the men in the book do take <laughs> do kind of take a, a lot of the a lot of the critique seems to be but i also was very unapologetic about the women and i thought this is a book about women we don't read a lot of books about african women being strong women being independent women uh being women that can say you know what actually i don't need you get out you Absolutely. know we they're there those are our mothers but we don't we don't talk about them in 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 there are very few books i've read um and also crossing over to asian literature where you see these women that are like you know what actually i don't need you the funny yeah. thing is they exist they're there there are mothers but people don't write about them you know people always write about women being like an extension of the man in the family you know sure. and it's not true and so i, I if i uh, if i painted the men poorly i i do apologize but I, it really wasn't meant to be something it wasn't something i sat down and i did consciously you know it had a lot to do with the time with the cultural norms you know your dad dies you go to the funeral there are children coming out of the woodworks at the funeral absolutely you know? no and 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 i only i mentioned it not as a criticism but really as um a reflection on everything you gave us to digest i mean while this book might appear to some as oh i'm going to pick this up as like a my summer read for those because i've seen it congratulations i've seen it on some of those lists for the summer you know you must read books which is fantastic i hope people pick it up 
you have given us a lot to chew on and a lot to think about and to reflect on. I think that's why I bring it up because you have these themes of family dynamics and, and secrets and the misogyny and the role of the church and and the power of women. I mean, Soila is an empowered woman and everyone who meets her in this book picks up on that. They actually either are offended by her power or it, it disconnects them from her or it draws them to her, right? One or the other, you know, her friendship with her the mother, Her mother, yes. I think, is actually her mother, I think, is the biggest feminist, mm. to be honest with you. And, and okay. these are the things. African women are never, ever seen as feminists. You know, it'll be, she's a very, she's a very good woman. You know, she really, you know, she has supported those children, even when the husband was, you know, <laughs> you know, he's a drunk. She has, but it's never like, no, she's a feminist. She's actually a feminist. She's saying, this husband of mine is a drunk. And actually, you know what? I don't need him. And, 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 and go out and, and educate your kids. Uh, our parents' generation, they never got divorced. So the guy was always there. Right, But really, we all knew that dad actually is useless and it's a mother mm -hmm. who runs at home. And Yayo to me is so important because she's a, she's a fierce feminist. And I know it doesn't always come off because maybe you're focusing more on how she's not so nice. She's a, she's a fierce, she says to Soyla, get an education, you know, Absolutely. don't depend yeah. on a man. Um, come back and run this empire. Um, you know, she could have easily said, I'm going to leave this thing to the, uh, I don't know, I'm going to sell it off uh, because I For know sure. my kid is not going to be. No, she says, come back and do this. Get an education. Don't depend on a man. Um, she herself just wasn't interested with her husband's brothers. You know, she said to them, you know, just don't call me. Don't come to my house, whatever, you know. And she was drawing these boundaries and, and, and refusing to have these men that are going to take her power away. So we need hmm. to talk about feminist, the quiet feminist. Yeah. The one who's not out there campaigning and crusading for women's rights, but is just living it. Absolutely. You know? Well, and it makes me think about this idea that, um, about this different brand of blackness that Soila was trying to wrestle with in the book like how did her blackness fit into the american context of blackness and you raise up this idea of feminism how does that feminism fit into our modern context of feminism looks like all the rights all the time for all the people as opposed to maybe just it's all about taking care of self and those me and mine and and this brand of feminism that maybe we have not recognized or included in our definition, but is equally powerful. And certainly Soila had to, I think, probably take one or one for the other. I think it seemed like she wrestled at times with what she needed most. Did she need her mother's strength or did she need her mother's love? And I I felt for her, you know, as, as somebody who's emotive, I was like, give her the love, give her the love. <laughs> she can yeah. get the strength from, you know, her friends. Um, but I appreciate what you're saying and the fact that we haven't given enough credit to a generation of women who had to do what they had to do yeah. um, to make the households and the economies and society run and function. Um, and, and, and you do, I think, uh, in, the, in the book, you have some powerful conversations. In fact, maybe I'll just read a passage now, um, because one of the things I was struck by is that a lot of the conversations that Soila has around race and her struggle with race 
at the beginning of the book seem to be happening with her lovers. Like she happens to have them in these kind of contexts. And then, but she has this black, black American best friend, Letitia, which reminds me so much of my story. Um, you know, the black American community gave me a home as an Ethiopian immigrant um, and gave me identity when I did not have an Ethiopian community at all. And um, eventually her and Letitia have this huge blow up um, when she comes home defending a white friend. And they have this deep heart to heart about race after years of friendship. And they have this really powerful conversation about their ancestors. And I just want to read you this passage and, and ask you to kind of reflect about how this came to be, because I thought it was a really powerful moment where Soila starts to talk about how her grandmother never saw her own picture until much late in, later in life. Um, and at some point, the, the priests in her community take their picture or something like that, and she's pointing out. So I, I just want to read this passage where she's talking about her grandmother, Koiko. And she says, um, the priest Kokoi. had a point. Koikoi, sorry. Koiko. Koikoi. 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 Koikoi, yes. Koikoi. I have it written down here in big phonetic letters. Koikoi. Okay. <laughs> Um, so the priest points to the image of each child and, is, and explaining to her grandmother, this is you and whatnot. And he says, this is you, this is you, here you are. And let's not even get into how we lost our religion. My grandmother was taught that God was androgynous, both masculine and feminine. But when the missionaries came, they taught her that a white man with long golden hair died for her on a wooden cross. And for that, she owed him her faith. And then the colonial masters took land from the Africans, all the while smiling at them, bringing them new medicine, introducing a cast currency, and offering them work so they could earn it. It's like owning a pet snake, feeding it mice, and all the while not anticipating that it'll strangle you while, while you sleep. Letitia nodded along, her eyes grim and sympathetic. I mean, it's unbelievable, T, she said. The colonization of property, body, and mind. To this day, I have no idea why we drink afternoon tea when it's boiling hot outside. Why we name our kids Jeffrey. Oh, what the hell, Letitia said, standing up and busting toward the kitchen. She threw her hands up and looked up at the ceiling. Lord, all this suffering on Black folk for centuries. Why? Such a powerful and like just beautiful connection between these two women of different communities, different ancestors, but the shared grief of what they had endured and both of their grandmothers who had been a bridge for them to new opportunities for themselves. Just I would love to hear from you how that came to be in your imagination and how it came to be on the page. It's such a beautiful passage. I, oh, okay. Um, the Soila goes to America and she's very arrogant, very arrogant. And I know that a lot of Africans can relate. Um, she thinks, you know what? These people are not me. We're different. And we, they seem to have a chip on the shoulder. They seem to have some crazy issues. They seem to be quite lazy. You know, she has all these weird, because she's, it's, you know, it's, you, you come off the plane, you don't have the context, you don't have the history. So it's what you see. You don't understand that actually, Oof, there's a lot going on here that's historical you know it's like um, it's 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 psychological uh change you know it's 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 historical change and and it just 
and it's hard. It's generations and generations, you know, of just just being so enslaved. You know what? I have a good analogy. One of my best friends has a has a dog, and I have a dog, and they're just a little bit, maybe a year or two. One is a year younger, a year older, whatever, and. Her dog is has been raised in a very strict household because her, her husband doesn't play. He doesn't play. So, <laughs> so the dog knows I don't go on the chairs. I don't go on the beds. I sit like this. And then my dog has no manners. And my dog is on the couch. It's on the bed. And every time this little dog comes to my house for a play date or a sleepover, even though she can see that there's freedom here, and it's okay mm. to go on the couch because Marshmallow is going on the couch. She still won't do it. She still just sits like this and she just watches Marshmallow on the couch. Mm. Right? Yeah. So this, this is, for me, it's the buff. It's like, I give you freedom. I give you everything that now you, you want. And you still cannot get out of your, 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 yourself. Um, to believe that you deserve it, to believe well, on, that you're worthy. And on top of that, and on top of that, the couch that you might want to get on is ten feet high and two miles south, and right? made and made of brick. You know, on top right? of that, the system around you is not made for you, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. So, um, so the the whole thing with Soila is she has to go to America a black person and she needs to unlearn a lot of her arrogance and she needs to understand that look I'm from a different um I'm from a different blackness right but but it takes her a minute to realize you know what actually as far as the world sees me as far as because the world is a it's, it's let's call it the truth it's a white world right we live in a white world and and she realizes as far as the white whites see me they just see me as black, right? And now I have to figure out who are my allies here? <laughs> yeah. Who most understands what I'm going through, right? Um, and so it takes her a minute to come down to that level and go, you know what, actually I'm black and black is black. And I may not have come from enslavement, but I also came from some severe trauma, which I may not have lived, but Letitia didn't live it either. Letitia didn't grow up in a plantation. So they are the same wavelength. And they're both kind of living the trauma of their grandparents and their great-grandparents, right? So, so I needed for Soila to come down to Letitia's level. And I needed her to say, look, we are the same, actually. You know, we have a different background. We have a different ancestry, whatever. But at the end of the day, we, as far as we are here today in this room, our experiences are the same. Mm. We will yeah. both struggle in the job market. Somebody else will be hired over you. And even if you get the job, you're going to have to work five times as hard as the other person, who, by the way, may not even be as good at your job as you. You know, you will never have the kind of networks these, that these people have. You will never have the networks. Um, your uncle doesn't know so-and-so and your dad doesn't golf with so-and-so. Everything that we do, we have to do from scratch. It is still yeah. to me amazing when I see Black people in these high positions 
And I'm thinking, if you know what it took for that guy to get there. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Right? So that conversation there was, was a sort of bridging point where Soila can understand that actually, you know what? I need to drop the arrogance. And even at that point, she's, she's already become quite mature in her thinking, but she still struggles. She still struggles a little bit with it because she's like, wait, but my white friend isn't racist. Why are you, you know, but she doesn't realize, actually, she may not be racist, but is she anti-racist? Is she anti-racist? Yeah, exactly. You know, will, Which she, made me... say you, will yeah. she say to you when, um, when your cousin is pulled over and you, and you say, oh, you know, yesterday my cousin was pulled over by the cops, blah, blah, blah. Will she go, oh man, they need to stop doing this to black men. Or will she say, you know what? I just feel like it happens. It just happens to, it happened to some of my white friends. And it's like, you just want to punch someone, you know? Absolutely. And they're not racist, but they're not really getting it. Yeah. And you hit on it. I think they're not anti-racist. They're not actively yeah. anti-racist, right? It's yeah. that idea that, is my freedom bound up in yours? You know, are we in this yes. together? Or are you just an observing exactly. my life? You know, yeah, like I'm in a fishbowl. Exactly. So, so the setting of this book really matters. You have so many key historical moments where this story takes place, which is my was my life exactly. I graduated college 98, so I'm a few years ahead of Soila. But, you know, it's right in this time of the U.S. Embassy bombing in Nairobi, the killing of Amadou Diallo, the, the 9-11, all these really, you know, cultural shifting moments where identity and race and globalism and nationalism really changed how we looked at each other. Could this right. book have, how would this book have been different if it was now? Oh my gosh, the, the, the thing is now, and I, and I, I think I say it in a, in a, in a letter that I write separately, uh, I don't know where that letter was. Maybe you read it, I don't know, but there was a letter that I wrote separately and it went to a lot yes. of the print houses. And I, and I said that <clears throat> that was the racism of the 90s. It, we, we, we people did not talk. There, there was just people groveled in the, in, the, in the background. Black people would grovel and talk about it. We didn't have the space to actually talk about it. We didn't have even words like Karens, you know, where microaggressions. You just, <laughs> microaggressions. I mean, nowadays, gosh, my teenagers will quickly check you, right? <laughs> quickly check you, quickly, and they're not polite about it, right? So, <clears throat> if I had written this book set in today's, um. It would have been a very different book because Stella would have been a little bit more educated, um, and uh, and and it would have it would have just she would have understood the issues, she would have understood um, that things you know that, that the microaggressions you know and and been more sympathetic I think, and also don't forget now the social media. So Zoila, even, even while being in Kenya, would have already seen the dramas, you know, of the black men being slaughtered and being shot and being, I said on my, one of the events I was at, I said, I literally have nieces and nephews who are Gen Z who say to me, I would never, ever live in America. They will mm. not, 
you're like, don't you want to go do your master's? No, not really. <laughs> they are very mm-hmm. happy not because they've seen on social media what it actually really is. And as Black people, they're like, why do I want to go and deal with that? In Kenya, my Blackness is actually not an issue. I can be Black. And why do I need to go there and deal with that? You know, we didn't, we didn't have that. We didn't know. We knew Dallas and Dynasty. And what did right. we know? Roots. Roots. Right. Roots. Right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so <clears throat> Blackness was so like, you didn't understand any of it at all. You know, and when you go there, you go there as an African and you think that there's a space for Africans. Actually, you know what? There's no space. There's space for Blacks. Right? Hmm. So pick a number. Are you going to be Black and be an ally of Black people? Or are you going to be confused? (laughs) Because, you you know, and so she's a bit confused. But So, oh no, it'd be a very different novel. And I think it would also be quite preachy. And I was trying to avoid that. And I was trying to also show, uh, um, I was trying to paint a picture of what racism was like. It was, it was, it still is quite insidious. It still is quite, well, not now, not so much uh, after Trump, because I think the racist whites are, are just like out there and they are unapologetic about it. I've noticed even in Europe uh, with the migrants and everything, the white Europeans are more racist than ever, right? So now, mm. but at the same time, they still they still way more conversation out out, you know. Let's talk about it. What you know, and when somebody when somebody messes up, they apologize or they want to know more or how did how did what did I say that was hurtful? You know, what did I do? And people are afraid. People are afraid to get fired, and they're afraid to you know. So there's a lot it of canceled, yeah. Changed. It's changed completely. This book would have been very preachy. If it had been said today, it would have been a black person in today's world telling white people off. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, I love the moments where Suela, like when she comes out of the bathroom and she has heard her coworkers speaking about her and she does, you know, what she could do in the 90s to tell them off, you know, was just which was just to let them know I've heard you. You know, yeah. just to let them know I, I, you were not uh, as anonymous as you thought. You really captured, I think, that how it felt to be at that time, both the lack of social media and the virality of these conversations just didn't happen then. And also, the, like you said, the simmering below the surface of everything we were feeling and, and not having the, the space to advocate or the, the, the platform we needed. And sadly, it feels like that moment really, really did not come until 2020, which is three years ago when George Floyd was murdered. And then all of a sudden the world started to pay a bit more attention. Um, you know, it really reminds me when I was in middle school, again, I'm a few years older than Soyla, I'm 47. But in my middle school, which is in the US and South Carolina, every year they would pick um, the prettiest girl, like the superlatives in the in the school newspaper. And I was the editor my senior year, my eighth grade year. So was, and we used to have the prettiest black girl and the prettiest white girl, the most handsome black boy, the most handsome white. We had to do it by race. That is so messed up. So messed up because we could not have just one. It had to be because by race. If you had to have one, the black the blonde girl would always be. Not only that, but God forbid, if the black girl won that year and the white person did not, then what, what would you do? Then can you validate her, her humanity as the prettiest yeah. girl? No, 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 no. 
She had to be the prettiest black girl, you know? Right. And so just, yeah, that, just that that was the world that I was living in as a middle schooler where you could only be validated as the black recipient of something. I mean, you're right. This book would be very different. And it reminds me of books like Chimamanda book you know Americana and a similar kind of immigrant story into the U.S. and all the encounters with race that had to be reconciled and in both those instances both protagonists come back to their home countries leaving the U.S. behind and all of the fantasies I think of the previous generation that the U.S. had the answers or had their futures in hand and and Soila at the end rejects that. And I want to ask you though, she, she comes back and this is a bit of a spoiler. So if you're listening to this conversation and you haven't gotten to the end of the book, this might be a good time to pause and come back. But you know, at the end, she does come back to, to Kenya to care for her mom. And we won't, we'll, we'll leave out some of the details, but do you think she would have come back had her mom not fallen ill? Would there have been other forces to bring her home? I don't think so. I think Suela had finally broken free and she had finally found, figured out kind of who she was, right? And so this was the biggest tragedy of all was now this thing happens and now she has to go, oh my God, I just finally figured out who I am and now I have to go back. Yeah. So I honestly think that if her mom, I don't want to get into the spoilers, but <clears throat> If there hadn't been that pool, very, very strong pool of, um, of, of sort of something that really forces your arm, um, I don't think so. Because I know yeah. one, like the auntie that moves to Europe doesn't come back because for her, it's like she's found her happiness. She's found her husband. So why is she going back? Yeah. Um, I think there needed to be a very strong pool that would make Soyla go, oh, you know, I'm, yeah. I'm going to have to, you know. Yeah. Uh, she had finally found, she had finally, she had gotten to a point where she didn't even pick up her mother's phone calls. She had gotten to a point where she was like, if you're not going to support me, too bad. And that's a huge, huge growth curve, right? Absolutely. So to get, to, to get through to that growth curve, and then give it all up? No, something really powerful had to happen for her to think, okay, you know what? And unfortunately, we are Africans and we, family comes first and it's a good thing. It's also a bad thing. You know, I read the reviews now. There's been, I think now on, on, on Goodreads, Goodreads, by the way, anybody that doesn't know is a, is a book, kind of like a book reader's. Yeah, uh, crowdsourced, yeah. Right, and people read the book and then they go on there and then they think, oh, I can write, another, I can write something and they think they're very <laughs> important, whatever. And then you get stars. So when I read now the reviews, I mean, the two things that people really struggle with, Americans struggle with is, my God, how, 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 how do you just leave your life and go back and take care of your mom? Like, it just, they cannot grasp that because they're not African. You know, mm. Africans, we will find a way, even if it means I will commute um, every other month or every month and go home and look at, look, you know, my dad is sick, whatever. I will go. I will find a way. Um, I know people that have left their lives in America, in South Africa, and they then they went back and they got, found jobs in Kenya and they struggle maybe the first three four years and then now they tell you like I'm so glad I came back because it was hard at first 
but now you know i i found i found my feet and i and I, and the best thing is i'm now able to be with my parents they're aging so so africans we're just different in that way so sure. so um we have that we have that thing of like i'm not able to put you in a nursing home and sleep at night i just don't know how to do that i do not know how to do that Absolutely. You know, it's, it's my parents, that was their biggest fear when we were growing up. They, they, that, that startled them the most when we immigrated to the U.S., seeing people putting their parents in nursing homes. And it's the one promise they've asked of us, me and my two siblings, please do not put us in a nursing home. And of course, we were like, of course we could never, you know, but that is their biggest fear because I think that to them is the example of the American approach to aging. And and, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Later years, you know, that that's how you deal with it. You know, Irene, I'm, what makes you lucky? What makes me lucky is I am, I have, okay, putting aside what you would call quote unquote blessings, uh, being that my parents are alive and, and, and they're old. My dad is 83 now. My mom is uh, getting into her late 70s and just watching them and thinking, my God, you know, they're healthy. They are still being able to be social. They have a social life. They can drive themselves. They can. That to me is, it's a, like you have no idea. Like, cause it makes me be outside of Kenya and not have to die of guilt and worry, you know, because I was just home and I saw them. They're just so fine. They're healthy. They're social. They're having their lives. They're happy. They're living their lives. Yeah. I think for me, that's huge already. Two. Um, I thank God for my nuclear family, healthy kids, supportive husband. Um, thank God. Um, and I think you know what? That's a lot more than most people can even. Yes. You know, so that that for me, and then everything else is like you wake up every day and you just kind of make it work. Some days I'm not so lucky, and <laughs> lucky, but for the most part, I feel really, really blessed. Um, and to be able to have even just done this at 40, God, I don't know how many, 40, whatever. Um, Absolutely. And, I, and I, you know, I sometimes would have these panic attacks and I would say, oh my God, what if nobody reads the book and whatever. And then one day my 16 year old daughter said, mom, you made a book. <laughs> you made and, a and book, I, sis. I, you made a book. And, and, I, and at that point I thought, you know what, you're right. I made a book. And if, if nobody reads it, if, um, if people have an issue with it, I've been getting some review, some gripes from Kenyans going, oh, you know, why would Soila say things like uh, a dollar a day, you know, lived on a dollar a day and, and, and you know, the African sun. And, and, I, and, I, and I find it hilarious because I can see how Kenyans can sometimes feel like this book is really not talking to me because they mm. want to learn. but the thing is and I wanted to say this before we um we concluded that I want Kenyans to understand that um you, you know sadly the publishing world is not a charity it's a business and um and so sometimes you'll find that there's a lot that authors would want to say and do and whatever but you're not you know there's a publisher yeah. Yeah. Right. And the publisher sits and decides who's your demographic. Who are you writing this book for? And um, and I happen to have an American publisher. And um, 
and I have American editors. And yeah, at the end of the day, this book, and, and, and sadly or not, I don't know, but this book is an American book. And it took, it took all of me to, to fight for the, the Kenyan. I mean, look, even, even this, even this, I'll tell you mm. the story of this. When Please. this cover, yeah, when this cover was first shown to me, it was a beautiful cover, but it was these buildings here, the New York skyline, mm -hmm. yes. it was mostly the skyline and the lemons. And I said, like, okay, this is a beautiful cover. I love the colors and everything, but I'm not really feeling like it's an African novel. Like, if you picked up this book at the time, you wouldn't even yeah. know, like, from the crazy name, <laughs> the unpronounceable <laughs> name, you'd not yeah. even have known that this book was, an, you know, and so I fought for that. And they came back and, they, and I said, I gave them some ideas. I showed them some African prints, whatever. And they came back with this which I think is what then makes it like look like, oh, yeah, you know, this absolutely. Book, you know. So in these little subtle ways that you wouldn't even know unless you were behind the scenes, how much, you know, I even had to fight for, um, for even that, just that much sort of space, you know, yeah. for, for, for a Kenyan voice. Um, and I, I'm not complaining. Thank God I have Random House. They're a great publisher. Um, but I'm just saying Kenyans need to understand that at the end of the day, you know, authors, maybe that's the joy of self-publishing is you can write whatever you want to write. But if you are uh, a published author by um, a commercial publisher, you know, there is some limitations. And so this book at the end of the day is, an, is, is for an American audience. Um, and so these are going to be those kinds of things that people are like, but why is she talking like an American and why? is there so much race issues and, you know, and, and, and it is, it, it's, it is going to have a lot of, this book, by the way, was authenticated by two black Americans. Um, so, what, what does that mean? Authenticated. So, so if you write a book as an author, you can ask for what's called authenticity readers or sensitivity readers. And it's ah. because sometimes you're writing a book and you are not, completely part of that culture and it's been very problematic uh, there's been um, cases of white people writing books about latinx communities and it's, sure. and it's been like proper proper dramas you know i wouldn't name the names of, of the stories but you probably know some of these stories um and, and it got into a point where i felt like you know what as much as i'm black and as much as i'll never be crucified for the things that I say, at the end of the day, I'm not Black American, let's be honest. So mm -hmm. I said, I want to have uh, authenticity readers that are Black American. I have two white editors, lovely, uh, but they're two white women and the publishing indus industry in America and in Europe is very white. So I have two white editors, lovely women, and also like a, quite a white team. And I did not feel that I had, uh, uh, somebody that could say, you know what, actually, you know, this isn't authentic or no, a black person wouldn't say this, you know? And I said, can I have authenticity? And they gave me a black, uh, uh, I think if I'm not wrong, female and black male. And in the end, they had no issues with the book. There was nothing offensive, but they did have some very, very good sort of feedback. I'm not going to go into it now. We're, 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 um, we're short, short of time, but um, 
I, I, I could not, for example, have a Kenyan sensitivity reader because this sure. book is being marketed to Americans. It would have been actually moot, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, so I put as much Kenyanism as I could um, in the things that I thought were important, not so much in the little, you know, oh, we cannot say a dollar a day. We have to because the rest of the world doesn't understand 150 shillings a day. What does that yeah. mean? Sure, right? sure, sure. Um, so, yeah, so there's those things, but I find I'm finding the Kenyans have been very, very, very supportive and they've not had a lot of gripe. Um, and if they have, it's mostly been those little things there and there. Um, and I'm just so grateful because, you know, I want to, I want to, I'm, I'm, I'm considering uh, doing my next book entirely set in Kenya. And I, and I don't know if, the, if it'll be accepted, but if it is, you know, then I go, I go all Kenyan and <laughs> I, I, I will be unapologetic. But again, I could only pull that because, because the first novel, I did what I was supposed to do and what I was told to do. And now that I actually have a following, I'll have American readers who will want to read what I write, no matter where it's set. Do you know what Understood. I mean? Yeah, of course, of course. No, you've said yeah. so much, Irene, and that so much. I do wish we had more time because you've touched on so many things that I think people across industry feel at. The, the trade-offs we have to make, the allowances we have to make. And, and Soyla in the book, you know, in her first relationship with Alex, some of this came up, right? Like, do what you got to do at that moment to get the, to the next level, to the next opportunity that hopefully then opens the door for a career that you want to have. Um, but I, but it did make me also wonder, you know, when you think about authenticity readers that you asked for, because that's who you are, it does make me think of the privilege of so many non-Black authors, non-Latin you know, Latin authors, et cetera, who have never asked for a, uh, an authenticity writer, uh, readers. And, and I'm wondering where all those authenticity uh, readers are for all the books about the continent or about Kenya that certainly land on our shelves here. I I could name so many, you know, that yeah. could have used a million readers to just verify the authenticity. Um, I had a conversation with Shiro Konyange about her book um, some, some time ago, The Havoc of Choice. And one of the things she talked about how is like, even in the book, she had italicized the kukuyu. And she said, you know, in my next book, I'm not even going to italicize the kukuyu. I'm not going to even other our language. I'm just going to leave it in there. You get it, you get it, you don't, you don't. But like you said, there are trade-offs there and there's, and she, and, and she talked about what, what that would cost her and that did cost her even at this juncture. And so we need all of these books and all of you as authors to show up in all the ways that you do. I think we're not yet at the point where the market is saturated with so many books in the US, in the UK, in Kenya by African authors that we are, you know, bored of it. We are still desperate for these stories. And so I think as readers, we welcome all the ways in which these stories come to us because we are not yet satisfied. And I'm so grateful that we have Lucky Girl on our shelves and available to us. I'm so glad we could get it here in Nairobi. I think that's a, certainly a plus of having a publisher like Random House, that it was more broadly available. You know, one of the tragedies in talking to creatives here is that you can make a Kenyan film, for example, but it may only show at a festival in Ghana, at an African film festival. It'll never be shown in Sarit Center. It'll never be shown, you know, um, in the main theaters where we can see it. And so the fact that this is, has 
random house behind it means that it's going to get into more hands and into more shelves and have the spark the discussions that we need to be having. And so that to me just increases its value tenfold. Um, so before I let you go, Irene, I, I always like to ask my guests two questions, which I feel like are these through lines, no matter whether we're talking about um, complex issues or hard issues, but two very light questions. First of all, Irene, sitting there in South Africa, please tell us what is your favorite drink? I don't drink that much. Oh, any um, drink. It doesn't have to be uh it doesn't have to be boozy. It can be anything. Anything, anything. I love well, I do love I mean, I do love cocktails. I'm not gonna <laughs> lie. And I love mojitos. I really All do. Right. Um, and I love Caparina and um mm. I love coffee. That's Caprina it. is the one that's a little bit spicy, right? It's got like no, a little bit of Caprina is the one that's full of sugar. <laughs> <laughs> It's Brazilian. You know Caparina. It's like, a, I think it's rum and it's got yes. a lot of sugar at the bottom and you have to stir. And I think by yes. the second one, pretty much finished. <laughs> and I love coffee. I love, co- I love Kenyan coffee. We always have Java. We always have Java here. Um, and I love, oh, and the rooibos. And the rooibos I only discovered, you know, when I moved yes. here. I didn't even know it existed. It's lovely. You know, it's so- you like Roboys. Roboys is a very divisive beverage in our household. We have, we're very split on Roboys. My daughter loves it. I struggle with that one, but there's the, it has a following for sure. Uh, and then the last thing you, you've touched on an answer, I think you might give already so beautifully, but you know, this podcast is all about joy, issues of joy and justice from Africa and the diaspora. I've already asked what makes you lucky, but I would also love to know what is bringing you joy today. Just being on this podcast. Just being on this podcast. Um, And you know what? Every day I look for something. Yesterday was like, you know, the New York Times review came out. Yes, congratulations. Um, Thank you so much. And you know what? It's not even a big review. It's not like a fancy review, but you know what? It's it they 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 publish. I mean they they do like I don't know, God. I think they do like one percent of the novels they receive every wow. month. One percent, one percent. And so I just feel like you know what? It it wasn't a massive review. It was like it was more of a plot summary. Then at the end, she did do like a bit of a. She tied up like okay the race thing. She said it's very compelling. Whatever. She brought up the brand of blackness, which for me is a very important theme. Actually, I did write an op-ed, I believe, uh, two weeks ago. It's on Lit Hub. It might not be still, but I'll forward it to you. But it, it was exactly about that, about the way that, you know, we see ourselves as different, different kind of black people. And to, to be honest with you, yes, I know the whole thing of, yeah, they're not our brothers. They really are not our, like, you know, this this whole thing of like, I am not Black American, I'm African. By the end of the day, people just need to understand that the minute you get out of Kenya and you go into the world, because you're the, the world is not always going to be just Kenya. And the minute you go into the world, you're actually going to understand that actually you're Black. And it doesn't matter whether you're in Europe or you're in the US, you are Black. <laughs> yes, you are. And so this of a, a brand, different brand of Blackness it's something that Africans I will battle with until I die because I want to have that thing of like I'm unique. I have my own ancestors. I have my language. 
I have my values. I have my work ethic, you know, whatever, whatever. <clears throat> By the end of the day out there, I promise you, you're black. And you will have a Karen who will just be, you'll be like, what just happened? Uh-huh. <laughs> you will have that moment at work. And I know now, just talking to my Kenyan friends now who, who work there, there is also an issue now in Kenya with um, a little bit of racism, you know, that I heard, sure. heard about quite, quite, quite often now. And I can't believe it's happening in Kenya. Uh, but there is a bit of white privilege being seen in Kenya. And, oh, yes. You know, there is white privilege and, and, and risk. You know, power can be taken from you, whether it's you're trying to invest in a business and somebody else comes and because they can attract, you know, investors because of the color of their skin, boom, your business idea is gone. And this person who's not even Kenyan, you know, now has this massive investment for the business that you wanted to do. And I think with time, as the as as the world gets smaller, you know, um, people, Kenyans are going to start to see this thing is not just a Western thing. This thing of white privilege is actually can touch you even as you're sitting in Kenya, you know. So for me, I don't know, th- that stuff is actually is actually very. And, and just to say, lastly, is um, the, the kids that we have now are very different, even even with my brand of blackness being different from what I consider comparing to the Western black now I'm noticing that even my children have a different brand of blackness from me. My children tell me off. My children tell off white people. My children tell off their white teachers. They are they are fierce, right? So they even have a different brand of blackness, right? The Gen Z are not playing. They're not playing. So b- blackness is so fluid. Um, but but at the end of the day, it's blackness. And we just have to all understand that. And once we can all understand that we're in the same room, <laughs> based Absolutely. on skin color, skin color, it comes down to skin color. That's it, right? It does. Yeah, absolutely absolutely and and the sooner we realize that the more powerful we will be because there yes. is strength in numbers yes yeah yeah absolutely well irene it's been such a pleasure to have you here i hope the next time you're in nairobi i can take you out for some tamperini or some or some yeah. coffee or something not roy voice but later this, year. later this year <laughs> okay you have- yeah fabulous fabulous Thank i will so look much. so forward to that and Lucky girl, we are lucky today to have had you here today on Thank the show. You so Thank, you so, so Thank you so much. Thank you so much. It's been such okay. a privilege. Thank you. Thank you so much, Irene, for being on the show today. I mean, you took us on quite a ride and gave us a lot to think about, about identity, about Kenya, about culture, about ourselves, about Roy Boy's tea. That was a surprise. <laughs> but thank you so much for being on the show. Listeners, we always love to hear your thoughts. So send me a message. Let me know what you thought about Soila, about Lucky Girl, about some of Irene's thoughts on the publishing world, about writing from the 90s perspective about race and intersection, about the brand of Blackness that you might be weaving for yourself. Um, Quite a powerful statement to think about. So you can reach us on all of our socials at Salam and Hello, S-E-L-A-M and Hello. And of course, you can email us lily at salamandhello.com or producer at salamandhello.com. 
And if you want to help the show out, please leave us a review, leave us a rating. It really helps us out. And don't miss next week. I'm really excited about our guest. I won't give out who it is, but you might see some spoilers online this week. Join us next week. And until then, be well and take care of yourself. Thanks for listening. You don't need to try Every time you smile Summer in your eyes I, I, I Don't ask me why I'm by your side You keep me alive You keep me